Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 125. It is all about behavioral change. I'm talking with Dr. Anthony Barrick. He's a clinical psychologist out of Australia. And uh, yeah, we sat down for about an hour and wrapped about all things related to behavioral change, tips and tricks, mindsets, different tools you can use. Uh, pretty cool conversation. Uh, before we pop in, we do have a few announcements. First up, fresh new barbell medicine gear. Got a new placebo shirt, the I'm a placebo shirt. Looks like a schoolhouse rock, sort of <laughs> a little cartoon thing. That's exactly what I asked for from the graphic designer. Um, so yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, check that out over on the website. Also the new Nuance shirts, let people know that you are complex uh, or just support the brand either way. And then also an update on the nutrition book. Um, yeah, this thing's taking a little bit longer to edit and format than we wanted it to, but uh, I'm really happy with how this thing's turning out. It's going to be about 200 pages prior to references. Um, it's basically split into two different sections. The first half is all like practical application stuff, basically do these things to uh, improve your dietary pattern to improve health and performance outcomes. And then the second portion is all of the science and data behind it that's kind of distilled down into an accessible format. And then there's also some practical uh, templates that are uh, included with the, the uh, nutrition book to kind of actually help people put specific recommendations in front of their face. So I'm really uh, excited for how this thing is shaping up. It's just going to take a, a, little, a little while longer, but I will be happy to have this done more than you, I promise. Um, in any case, let's hop into this week's podcast with Dr. Anthony Barrett. All right, we're here with Anthony Barrick, all the way from Australia. He's actually in the future. Every time I talk to somebody who's in Australia, I always have to ask them what time it is, and it's always a day in the future, and I just, well, it's exciting. Anyway, uh, Anthony, for people who are unfamiliar with you and your work, can you give us a sort of background, your uh, a mini CV, if you will? For sure. Um, yeah, so thanks for having me, and um, welcome from the future. Um, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a psychologist. Um, I specialize in working with people with phobias and um, chronic pain. So I run a clinic called the Sinophobia Clinic, which uh, helps people with um, a phobia of dogs and um, barbell psychology. Um, which uh, is where I work with uh, Daniel Arbilla, an exercise physiologist, and um, help people with chronic pain to get strong, um, lift weights, um, and uh, live life more fully. Um, and uh, I'm also the co-creator of um, an acceptance and commitment therapy app called Act Companion. That's awesome. Yeah, we're going to definitely get into that. Uh, before we do, can you give people a rundown of your education? How did you get here uh, from a formal training perspective? Yeah, sure. So, um, so as I said, I'm a, I'm a registered psychologist, uh, which in Australia means I've completed um, six years of study um, and two years of uh, supervised um, practice. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to maintain my registration, um, you know, continue with, uh, professional development, um, including, um, last year, the barbell medicine seminar, um, in Sydney, um, which was, uh, which was really, um, really impactful, uh, for me, it kind of, um, brought together a bunch of, um, ideas, um, and, uh, really resonated with some of the stuff that I was already sort of seeing in my psychology practice. Um, and that was the, the inspiration for me kind of moving into the, the chronic pain work that I'm doing. Well, that, that's awesome. And, and for the record, we, I did not pay Anthony to say that that was a, a advertisement of his own free will, uh, to the extent that that exists, but that's for another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, so it's, the equivalent, I think, for what you do in the States would be like a clinical psychologist. Uh, these folks end up setting up shop and seeing patients in a clinical setting, 
um, to work with them on all sorts of different issues, uh, mainly pertaining to behavioral change in some fashion uh, or form. So we're going to talk about behavioral change. We talk about behavioral change targets over and over and over again, mostly with relating to physical activity, dietary interventions, or other health-promoting behaviors such as getting enough sleep, interpersonal relationships, et cetera. We we go into the weeds on some podcasts on all of those, but now we're going to talk about kind of the process by which you get people to change their behavior. Uh, So your day-to-day practice, what does that actually look like? Um, Are you bouncing between clinics? Are you mostly at the Barbell Psychology Clinic? Is that mostly remote or or how does, what does your day-to-day actually look like? Yeah. So it's, it's a bit of a mixture um, at the moment. Um, So uh, like you said, kind of going between uh, the the two um, clinics and um, as well as uh, working with with clients with a range of other sort of anxiety related presentations um, whether it's things like uh, phobias panic attacks um, OCD um, but uh, I'm really wanting to more and more kind of focus on the the chronic pain stuff going forward yep so and you're seeing people live in person yes they come into your clinic great yes great. exactly uh, um, okay so we're gonna start this off with kind of an overview of like how do you view the behavioral change process because you've been to our seminar and the way we kind of conceptualize this for people who come to our seminar is by using the trans theoretical model now if you've never heard of that before not you but our audience um, this is a model put forth by prochaska and another uh, group of researchers basically uh, in the 1970s where they were studying folks uh quitting smoking and it was effectively this model with uh, a number of different stages that people moved fluidly back and forth from it, and each uh, stage has its own definition of like how willing somebody is to change their behavior so for example there's like a pre-contemplation phase where people are like thinking about changing their behavior they're open to the idea of changing their behavior but they have not they have not yet started changing their behavior because there's one or more obstacles or perceived barriers in the way uh conversely there's like an action phase where people are actively changing their behavior they're they're doing the thing um and then there are unique challenges at each one of these phases that uh, kind of restricts people's movement forward to the next phase and the next phase. And the final phase would be sort of termination. Effectively, this behavioral change has become part of your life. Uh, you're doing it without any extraneous effort and uh, life is good. Now, not all behavioral change gets there, certainly, and there's relapses and and things of that nature. But that's the model we use to kind of communicate the behavioral change process. Do you use a different conceptual model? Uh, and I'm just curious to kind of get your thoughts on how you view it. Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, the, uh, the app that I've, um, developed is, is based on acceptance and commitment therapy. And that's the kind of framework that I, um, I practice in. So, um, acceptance and commitment therapy is, um, without getting too technical, um, kind of falls under the, the umbrella of, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which, um, uh, a lot of people have, have probably heard of. Um, it's a therapy that's about, um, changing behaviors by changing, um, people's thoughts and feelings. Um, and, uh, as, as implied by the name acceptance and commitment therapy is, um, a therapy that is about, um, helping individuals to accept the things that are outside of their control that they can't change and focus on committing to changing the things that um, they have some control over um, in accordance with their their core values. Um, And so the goal of acceptance and commitment therapy is uh, living a more rich and full and and meaningful life, Um, not necessarily feeling better or, or, or happier, although um, all the research um, so does suggest that that is a, a, a happy byproduct of um, success in, in acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, so the, uh, the kind of um, underpinnings of um, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, uh, which is referred to as ACT, um, is uh, behavioral psychology and um, understanding the learning processes that lead people to um, engage in the behaviors that they do 
in a given context. So um, this, this sort of theoretical underpinnings is what we call functional contextualism. And it really just means looking at the function of the behavior, you know, why we do a behavior um, in, in the context that, that we're doing it. Um, and so the, the kind of science of behavior um, change really started um, with a guy called um, B.F. Skinner, um, he's famous for doing lots of experiments with rats and pigeons, pressing buttons and, you know, training them to do certain behaviors to get rewards or, or, or punishments and um, really sort of um, scientifically studying how um, the consequences of their behaviors um, shape their behaviors to change over time. And then what they found is that the, the same kind of uh, principles apply to human behavior um, as well. And so uh, Skinner has a really, a really cool quote, um, which I love to, to remind myself of, which is, um, the rat is always right. And what he means by that is um, when you're conducting one of his, you know, experiments with uh, a rat in a box that you're training to like press a button to get a food reward, and the rat does some weird unexplained behavior um, or something you, you've not been training it to do or it, it refuses to do the thing that you've been training it to do. Um, it's not because the rat is lazy or stupid or stubborn. It's because there is something that has happened in the rat's learning history that means that that behavior makes sense in that context for that rat. And so... Um, when we apply this kind of understanding of behavior to humans, it allows us to really kind of dig down to the, the roots of why we do what we do with a kind of um, uh, a scientific mind, uh, a, a curious inquiring mind, stripping back these, these kind of judgments and, and blame and shame that we often get caught up in around behavior and, and really seeking to understand and, you know, basing our understanding on an assumption that um, people are doing what makes sense to them if we can understand their learning history in respect to this context in which they're doing the, the, the behavior. Yeah, effectively, if you go back far enough, you can understand any behavioral selection or behavioral activity that somebody's doing. Um, it's not again, due to like a lack of necessarily willpower or, uh, you know, because they're uneducated or because of, you know, some other sort of conscious choice to just not do it. It's there, there's, it makes sense to them to engage in the behavior or avoid a particular behavior, uh, due to stuff that's already happened. Uh, it's kind of makes people feel uncomfortable in a way because we start going down this road, people are, you know, invariably come to the conclusion. So you're just saying that People are not responsible for their behaviors. Uh, it's not what we're saying. Um, you, you people are, you know, in, in general, responsible for the things that they do, uh, but it may not be their quote unquote fault that they're doing the things because they may be uh, exposed to different situations or different environments or different, you know, other uh, conditioning elements that ultimately result in the lot that they're given. Um, yeah. And so while it may not be their fault, their responsibility is ultimately their own. And then hopefully they see people like you uh, that can kind of change that learning curve or change, you know, some uh, aspect of their environment or, or whatever to to make the sensible choice be the favorable choice, which is, you know, complex way of saying change your behavior. Uh <laughs> Yeah, and it's kind of, it's, it's one of these things where it's like, um, maybe that leads to some sort of uh, slightly uncomfortable conclusions, um, you know, maybe leads to a, a slightly different worldview to the one that uh, we are, are used to living in. Um, but if, if that's where the, um, the, the evidence is, is taking us, then, um, you know, should, be, should we be willing to um, accommodate that view? Um, and, you know, there's, you can have a sort of a, a, a moral and philosophical discussion um, 
separate to that, but I don't think I don't think we need to go down that path. No, um, sure, no. You know, <laughs> we, for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, you know, you, you don't need to go down that path with your with your client, or you know, or your trainee who you're who you're trying to help make some behavior change either. Um, it's just a way of approaching this question um, of, you know, why, why, am I, why am I doing these things or why am I finding it so hard to make these changes? It's just a way of uh, approaching that question that I think is a, a little bit more scientifically rigorous and leads us to more practical um, solutions than putting labels like, you know, lazy or, you know, lacking willpower or addictive personality um, on people, which are really uh, descriptions rather than explanations. Sure. Yeah, this is one of the, the kind of underpinnings to why we we uh, when I say we, I mean like the medical and healthcare com- you know uh, uh, community at large have tried to shy away from using the term non-compliant uh, mm-hmm. and, and shift over to adherence because mm-hmm. when you would just say that a patient or a person is non-compliant with either the you know, behavioral change recommendation or the medication recommendation or something, it's pointing the finger at them. Like, look, it's your fault because you didn't do this, this, and this without really understanding all the complex things going into that behavior itself. Um, And so somebody might be non-adherent because they misunderstand something or don't have access to something or there's resources missing or there's other sort of, you know, uh, confounding variables and so understanding the why, why somebody can't uh, behind why somebody can't adhere to a particular change or prescription um, lets you better solve that issue rather than just saying that's you know it's a you problem it's because you're non-compliant. Um, yeah. So, so we're we're on board and we we talk about this uh, yeah quite a bit again not just us but medical community at large. So through your view, everybody is effectively a target for behavioral change. Uh, there's not, people aren't really identifying themselves like, yep, I'm ready to change. So now you can help me. Um, that is like everybody who comes into your clinic, there's, they're effectively, you know, ready to, or in your view, you could, you, you think that they're a good candidate for, for trying to change their behavior. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Um, although, you know, obviously, uh, that's a, a, a very biased sample. By the time someone's, um, coming to see me, they're, they're acknowledging the presence of, of some kind of problem and looking for, um, looking to make some changes. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, in that sense, they're, they're already, um, in the, at, at least in a kind of uh, contemplation stage of change, um, but there might be a little bit more work to be done. Like they might be still holding on quite tightly to some, some behaviors that, uh, are clearly not working for them in the way that they want them to. Um, but they have some sort of narrative around those behaviors and some, you know, some, some rules and reasons for persisting with those behaviors or for not making changes, um, that are maybe, uh, a little bit, uh, inflexible. And so, um, you know, my job might be trying to kind of bring their awareness to um, some of the evidence that perhaps you know uh, challenges um, the uh, the the narratives um, underpinning those behaviors um, and uh, making them um, aware of you know some of these rules and and reasons and and judgments that they have that that underlie these behaviors that perhaps they're not consciously aware of but are very much influenced by um in in the way that they act yeah because then their the sensible decision is likely to change once they have a new understanding or a new perspective uh based based on that it kind of sounds like again we we get some flack on the using the trans theoretical model for some from some folks who don't use it and they use a different model or different sort of uh, un, you know core sort of underpinning for their behavioral change strategy, uh, but a, a lot of this stuff is inter- interchangeable in a way because it's it's very similar sort of processes and sort of uh, identifying folks and meeting them where they're at as far as what sort of tools and resources and strategies and information do they need at a given point to help move them forward in this in this process um 
Yeah, so let's let's use physical activity as an example. Now, uh, most of your stuff regarding physical activity, most of your work revolves around people who are either in chronic pain or uh, otherwise have had been in pain recently. And so trying to get them to become physically active, we know we want to do that because that in general not only improves their quality of life but also tends to help with, with pain. So what sort of barriers do you see most commonly – or, or sort of any common threads do you find that are like preventing people from engaging in physical activity? Yeah. So I'd say the biggest, um, the biggest barriers would be probably the, the cultural ones that, um, uh, that we have, um, you know, that, uh, create these, these narratives around, um, pain uh, being indicative of tissue damage and uh, movement with pain being dangerous and um, seeing the body as some kind of machine that uh, kind of falls apart and deteriorates the more you use it. Um, these, these kind of um, assumptions are so um, pervasive within our culture um, and the way we talk about pain and, and our bodies that, um, until you, you address them and, and kind of, um, uh, open the possibility to some, some different narratives, um, it makes sense that someone with pain is not going to want to engage in physical activity, Right. Yeah. Um, so I would say that that's probably sort of like the number one. Um, and that's a, that's a big challenge for an individual, you know, clinician or coach to come up against because we're talking about, um, uh, uh, you know, narratives that um, are in the movies we watch and the social media we consume and the, um, the, the good advice that other health professionals give or, you know, I should say the, the well-meaning advice. Um, so we're, we're definitely swimming upstream when it comes to that. Um, but, uh, there, there are some tools that we can use. Um, I would suggest that, you know, sort of directly challenging and confronting people's lifelong beliefs is not necessarily a, a productive way to go about that. Um, uh, no. low percentage shot there. Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, I, I tend to be, um, to, to lean on the side of, of pragmatism and, um, just asking people to, um, be honest in their assessment of what is and isn't working for them. Um, so as humans, we, are, you know, we have this in incredible, um, tool of language which allows us to pass on information and represent the world and, and things that don't exist yet um, and plan for the future and build skyscrapers and, you know, all the rest of these, these amazing things. Um, but uh, language can also be very sticky and um, can create um, rigidity and inflexibility and it can cause us to hold on to um, rules about how the world works and kind of um, uh, blind us to the evidence that contradicts those rules, right? And so um, as, as humans, we can um, engage in what we call uh, rule-governed behavior. So we, we follow rules and, and sort of these heuristics that we have in our mind. So, you know, if, if pain, then rest, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, unfortunately, these, these language-based rules can be so um, powerful and compelling that we don't bother to actually kind of check these rules against reality, um, and we, we are easily, um, you know, fall victim to confirmation bias. Once we've established a rule in our mind, we find lots of evidence that supports the rule and we kind of, you know, dismiss any evidence to the contrary. 
Um, so I think the first step when we notice that that perhaps um, these narratives are present and maybe holding someone back from um, making some behavioral changes is to um, see if we can kind of um, make those some of those beliefs explicit, like like write them out or say them out and, you know, bring them to the person's attention. You know, so I noticed you were saying that, um, you know, when you're in pain, um, you you tend to, to rest or um, avoid physical activity because you don't want to aggravate the pain. You know, are you saying that uh, you 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 believe that um, doing physical activity when you have pain might damage your body and you know the person will say yes yes that you know that's right you know because i've heard this i've heard that and um and then we could just kind of gently um ask the the person if they've ever um had any experiences that maybe um don't fit with that uh rule and um maybe even suggest um, some kind of behavioral experiment that the person could engage in to, um, to sort of test that rule or at least, at least create a little bit of um, nuance, shall we say, um, around, around that rule, right? Like, okay, maybe this is sometimes true, but it's not always true. Yeah, it's like a violation or an expectation violation in a way. We're trying to get that person to, to see that. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's really interesting that we we've kind of gone this direction. Um, we're actually finishing up this article on injury risk from exercise and really trying to drill down on like, hey, here are the things that potentially cause injury. Here are the things that don't, and here's why it's a problem. So the reason why it's a problem, you know, spoiler alert: this article is going to be a beast, but probably not going to be released for a few weeks. But the problem is that most people are not physically active enough. I know, surprise, surprise. Right. Uh, we're talking we're talking about you know. Less, less than probably 5% of the entire world's population is actually coming anywhere near meeting both the aerobic and anaer- you know, resistance training guidelines that we have for yeah. physical activity. Uh, of the people who are not active, which is, you know, we're talking 95%, maybe more of the world's population, 40% of them, 40% of them cite the reason why they're not currently meeting the physical activity guidelines or being physically active is because they're afraid they're going to get injured. Yeah. Wow. Which is so a huge problem. And then when you ask them, well, where did you learn that? They say healthcare professionals, up to 90% of them. Yeah. And, and, and I think, and you alluded to this earlier, in addition to healthcare professionals like in person, well, now there are healthcare professionals and other subject matter experts all over the interwebs yeah. going, going crazy with this stuff. I mean, you have physical therapists, or as you guys say, physiotherapists. Yeah, uh, athletic trainers, personal trainers, strength conditioning coaches, and otherwise, you know, people regarded as experts in the strength conditioning field, putting out information that likely contributes to this narrative. What are your thoughts on that from like a social learning perspective and, and sort of downstream effects of that? I don't want to sound too pessimistic, <laughs> but uh, as I said, you know, I think we're we're swimming upstream here. And we need to be realistic and, um, and, and humble about our ability to, um, to change people's um, perspectives. And I think we need to, um, therefore, kind of uh, take a softly, softly and, you know, um, incremental approach to that. Um, just keep putting the good information out there, encouraging people to um, be skeptical and, and question things. And um, as I was saying, you know, kind of um, use their own experience um, and be willing to um, put some of these things to the test in their own lives um, by being aware of some of these beliefs and rules that they, they might have in their minds that, uh, that shape these behaviors, um, firstly, and then, um, testing them in, in, in the, in the real world, um, for themselves. So, um, there's a kind of, uh, there's a cool experiment that, um, 
sort of illustrates this this point about um, rule governed behavior. Um, and uh, I apologize to to the authors um, of the study because um, I've long since uh, forgotten uh, who who actually ran the study. But um, I think it's from the the 70s, um, where they they trained um, pigeons on a kind of um, lever pressing game, right? And and if they pressed the levers in the right order, they were rewarded with um, a food reward. And um, but the the order they had to press the levers, um, you know, was completely a mystery to the pigeons. The pigeons just uh, they had been trained, you know, to press levers to get food, and so they saw these levers and they start just hammering away at them at random, trying to get them to do something. And um, at some point, you know, suddenly uh, they get a food reward, and uh, so they they go kind of hammering again at the levers, and um, you know another food reward pops out, and and over time they're able to figure out the correct combination that they need to use um, of lever presses to get the food reward, um, but it takes them quite a long time. There's a long process of of trial and error. Um, you do the same thing with with humans, um, and humans figure out the the order to press the buttons um, much much faster. We're able to kind of extract the rule because we are able to sort of um, create this verbal rule in our mind, rather than it just being a sort of a a, a pure kind of associative um, learning. We, we actually create a rule in our mind where we say, oh, you know, you press the green button twice, then the red one once, and then the blue one, and back to the green, or whatever it might be. Right. But um, halfway through the experiment, the, uh, the, the mean experimenters kind of switch the, um, the rule uh, so that there's a different combination required to now get the reward. And so the pigeons, the poor, you know, hapless pigeons are just there hammering away at, at the levers. Um, they keep trying, you know, what's worked in the past, but it's not working anymore. So then they start, you know, um, sort of going back to their, their random attempts. Um, and eventually they, they discover the new combination that's needed and, um, and they use it pretty successfully, you know, not 100% accuracy, but, uh, you know, maybe 90% or so. Um, on the other hand, the humans almost invariably fail this experiment. Um, they, they found the rule, they stick to the rule, the rule stops working, and um, then they get pissed off and give up. And they, you know, they put their hand up and they, they tell the experimenter, you know, your machine's not working anymore. It's supposed to do this, but now it doesn't work. Um, and, and this is just a, a, a really great example of how, you know, language can really serve us because it, it allows us to um, extract these rules from our environment and then we don't have to um, we don't have to kind of pay attention anymore we can just hold these rules in our mind and follow these rules but the problem is when um, when the world changes um, we are likely to persist with rules that are actually no longer reflecting reality uh, very well so um, what we want to do in, in that situation, you know, um, what the experimenter um, could do to help the, the subject is um, to say to them, um, why don't you try something else? Maybe things have changed now. Why don't you, why don't you try um, some different combinations and see what works? And so that's kind of what we, um, as clinicians or coaches, what we can think about doing with our, our clients or, or trainees is kind of um, bringing their awareness to the rules that they already kind of implicitly hold, um, being curious and inquiring about maybe where they think those rules have come from and um, seeing if they'd be willing to put some of them to the test, you know, and, and, and maybe in, in ways that um, are fairly low risk, right? So if someone believes that they have um, a really weak back and, and, and damaged spine, and if they lift too much weight, they're going to blow out a disc and be in a wheelchair for life. We're not going to suggest that they, um, they try deadlifting, uh, you know, some, some heavy weight. Um, but we might ask them instead to um, see what happens when they engage in some movement that they consider low-risk movement. 
And, um, you know, does the rule really hold true or, or does it not? Or, you know, is it only true in certain contexts, but maybe not true in others? Right. So you're, you, you, the first, one of the first things you might have people do just to recapitulate because people, you know, like these like summaries, you might have people explicitly write down the, the rule that they think is true. And then you might find a low stakes sort of situation where they can test that rule against reality. And an, the idea is to like then change their understanding of that rule so that they engage in a different behavior or at least are open to, to, to changing that. So without, without it, it and low stakes in this situation would obviously be unique to the individual based on the context and what behavior we're talking about. But what if, uh, what if somebody tells you, nah, I'm not open to testing it. Where do you go from there? Um, <laughs> well, you know, I guess, uh, as I said, I, I kind of, um, I lean towards, um, pragmatism always. So, um, and I guess this goes back to what I was saying about, um, you know, when someone is sitting in front of me, they're already acknowledging that something in their life is not working for them. Um, and so there's already, you know, some, some acknowledgement that something, um, might need to change. Um, and so, uh, if someone insists that, no, this is the way it is, I'm, I'm completely sure of it and it works for me. Um, you know, I would probably kind of, uh, let that go and, uh, see if maybe, maybe that's something we can come back to later and, uh, you know, let's, let's pick the next, uh, lowest hanging fruit. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I, I really like this uh, approach uh, from a practical standpoint, just because, again, you're, you're basically making people claim a certain position. Um, not that you're trying to, like, see, to, to make them feel wrong or, like, you know, like they had a, a previously, like, inaccurate view um, of the world and then, you know, laugh about it. But, but rather, you're, you're making them, you know, stake a claim and then testing it. And the idea is through testing, you show them actually that maybe that wasn't the relationship was, was not what you perceived it to be. And so we can start working on these other, you know, the, the, these behavioral change targets that we were we were right. trying to get to in the first place, rather than just saying, telling somebody like, yeah, you know, you need to exercise because exercise is good for you. Don't you know that? And they're like, yeah, yeah like I'm aware that exercise is good, but I think that being physically active hurts me or makes my right. pain worse. And so it wasn't the idea, it wasn't the fact that I didn't think that exercise was good for me. Uh, it's just that I didn't think that I could participate. So, Yeah, and I, I guess also um, just the act of kind of um, explicitly articulating um, a, a belief um, in itself can often create a little bit of... Um, flexibility and, and, you know, uh, less rigidity around that belief, because often people won't even be aware that they have these beliefs. And when they sort of say them out loud, they realize like, Hmm, I don't know where this belief is coming from. And it's, it's not necessarily based on, on some solid, um, evidence or, you know, underpinnings. It's just like, well, everyone knows that, um, is, you know, is everyone knows something, uh, a good reason to believe, um, in something. Um, so generally, uh, I find that, that when, when, uh, people articulate these, uh, beliefs out loud, they notice themselves kind of, um, uh, expressing some, some skepticism, um, about their beliefs. Um, because, you know, we're not talking about things that, that really, um, are, are, deep kind of at the core of someone's identity, like sort of religious beliefs or philosophical beliefs about the meaning of life and things like that, right? That, um, you know, if we're talking about, you know, physical activity is going to hurt my back. Um, most people aren't too strongly wedded to a belief like that. Like they would be, they would be happy to change that belief, um, given, given the, the evidence to give them uh, confidence that they can move, um, without injuring themselves. It, it's when you're having people articulate their thoughts. Also, it, it, it gives you more leverage points for potential expectation violation because people, once they when they're saying it out loud or they're writing it down, 
they start to in, intrinsically kind of wonder like, well, how confident am I in this actual claim or belief? Like, I don't know if I quote unquote know that. Um, I might think that, but I'm not sure how confident I should be in that, even if they don't explicitly say that out loud, but that's, it kind of gets the wheels turning there too. So I like that exercise for kind of unlocking the ability to maybe change somebody's perception. Uh, because first you have to start out with like, well, what do you actually believe? And then from there, potentially find some ways to violate, uh, that belief in a way that's productive. Uh, can people do this on themselves? Like, can I, we'll just call this a fancy psychological Jedi mind trick. Yeah. Is, can I, can I do this to myself or have you, you know, messed me up because now that I already know this, I can't do it to myself. <laughs> um, no, I would like to think, um, that, uh, this is definitely something that, um, that people can kind of, uh, you know, self reflect on and, and, um, I think starting with that um, that quote that I gave you um, that the rat is always right um, is a really good place to start because if if we if we make the assumption that whatever you're doing um, you're doing for a reason right like there's there's some kind of payoff and you know it makes sense in your life if we understand, you know, all the experiences that you've, you've had in your life thus far, then we can kind of um, peel back the layers of judgment and blame and shame that might be attached to um, uh, behavior. And then we can kind of have a, a more honest conversation with ourselves about why we do the things we do. And if we are convinced that, you know, I... I really, really want to um, be um, engaging in physical activity regularly, but you know, but I never seem to do it. I'm just a, I'm just a lazy couch potato. Um, well, if we can kind of get strip back that that not very helpful or informative label and say, you know, despite you telling yourself and 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 genuinely wishing to change this behavior for for such a long time you've not been able to do so it suggests there's probably some really powerful um, reasons um, why you're not changing that behavior so um, you know would you be willing to kind of look at those uh, possible reasons non-judgmentally and 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 honestly and and kind of you know have that conversation with yourself about you know what what might some of those reasons be and maybe it's not because you're you know a lazy so and so after all yeah i think one of like to the extent that you can do this on yourself requires you to be able to not only have honest conversations like with yourself about your own behaviors but also to have the insight to recognize the different behaviors that you're doing uh, that ultimately are contributing to a particular behavior not being done. So if we take a behavioral change target like increased physical activity, there may be multiple behaviors that are contributing to not engaging in physical activity. And so you'd have to be able to know like, yeah, these are all the things that are contributing and then go through like, what are your beliefs about each one of these things? And, you know, can we violate that in some way that makes you not hold that belief, ultimately change your understanding of it, and ultimately, summatively, you know, change your the the target, which is now. Oh, now we can, we 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 can engage in physical activity. So, to the extent that people can do that on their own, uh, I think you give it a college try. But the professional is not only useful at like identifying you know these multi, these different targets, but also then being able to provide the appropriate resource at the appropriate time because you're the subject matter expert um you know on why people do what they do in in some manner so people may blow off uh uh you know a particular behavior like oh well i'm just like that and then you know the psychologist in you is like well well that may be true overall however there are probably other things that we should probably address to figure out why that is you. And then addressing those may lead us to a solution. Um, so yeah, I would like to agree with you optimistically that I think people could, you know, 
with high levels of self-efficacy could undertake this on their own in some manner, or at least try. But uh, w- when would you recommend somebody seeing um, a, a specialist? And so in the United States, again, clinical psychology, clinical psychologists would be the, the, the person. And usually you can find folks who specialize in different areas. Uh, this has all the caveats of like, yeah, you want to make sure you find a good person <laughs> who's doing evidence 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 based practice but uh that's again for another podcast when do you think though is the appropriate time to like yeah i should get a professional involved i guess you know if you're kind of um you're struggling really to um understand uh um why you're not able to um make some some behavior change like this this behavior really seems to fit with your your core values it, it feels like it, it's really important to you, it's it's the kind of person that you um, you really want to be. You can see all the benefits of engaging in this this behavior, um, but you know, despite this kind of um, committing every every weekend to to starting um, this new this this behavior change on the Monday, um, it never seems to happen. Um, then I think uh, it's you know, the next logical step is to, to go to an expert and say, you know, I'm having problems uh, changing this, this behavior and I can't quite figure out why. Um, maybe that's something we could look at together. Um, or I guess if you notice um, that there are some other things going on, like significant um, feelings of, of anxiety um, that show up um, around the behavior or, um, you know, it kind of maybe relates to your, um, your self image, um, your, your identity, or you, you're aware that there are things that have happened in your past that, um, maybe some, some trauma, um, things like that, that could perhaps be contributing to this, um, this, this difficulty in, in changing your behavior, um, you know, that, uh, you feel like, uh, you could, um, you could do with some, some help working through. Yeah. Yeah. When it, yeah, if you need additional help or the severity, uh, increases getting a professional on board seems like a good idea. Um, for people in the trenches who don't have formalized training in clinical psychology, do you think that they should be attempting this with their clients or in some cases, loved ones, and it is the holiday season. So, you know, this, this probably might <laughs> has a higher potential of happening when you're around family or people close to you. Do you think it's uh, appropriate for them to try to do some of these things, elicit these narratives and kind of um, work with people through them? I mean, I think we do, we do it anyway, right? So, um, I- ideally, yes. This is yeah, good. right. So, you know, whether professionally, um, if if you're a coach, you're doing it anyway. Um, you know, with your your trainees, or um, you're probably doing it with your family members anyway. Maybe a sort of um, maybe in not a very helpful way. Um, but uh, uh, so you know, you may as well um, you may as well try and do it in in a more um, sort of, uh, scientific evidence-based way and, and really starting with this premise that, um, whatever this person is or isn't doing, it makes sense to them. And there, there's, there are reasons why they are persisting with these behaviors, um, even though they, they appear not to be working for them. Um, and so, um, if you are, are willing to kind of approach, um, that problem with this non-judgmental, non-blaming, non-shaming, genuinely curious, um, mindset and, and be willing to kind of engage in a, in a process of discovery, not where you're the teacher and, and the, um, you know, the trainee is the, the student, but where, you're both um, kind of going on a journey of, of exploration and inquiry together, then I think that's the kind of uh, approach that is is most likely to um, to be productive. Yeah, I really like the way you put that. I, I think a 
sometimes the problem can be particularly in situations where there is a hierarchy in place already, like the coach or trainer and then the to the trainee um, you know, or client. It's like, well, you are the teacher. So that, that role, it, it's hard to break free from that. Um, and I think that in general, when people are trying to get others to change their behavior, they're not doing it from a uh, a, a way that is non-judgmental uh, and that you know is uh, like a shared exploration to kind of get to the bottom of it. It's more of like I'm not saying it's you know directly judgmental, but uh, or or shameful or, or 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 even like without compassion. I think people do generally genuinely care about uh, others, but. I don't know that they have the either the, the the tools or the sort of framework to go about this process. But hopefully they do after, you know, listen to this podcast. Uh, the last question I'll ask you about like practical strategies here. If if you were trying to start a conversation with somebody about a about behavior change, um, how what what would be your opening line? Because I think a lot of us, you know, again, humans being human, we can we we see all the faults in other folks. You know, that's we're really good at that in some manner. Um, if you were trying to start a conversation with, uh, let's say, a family member about their smoking habit, how would you uh, go about doing that? Just up, give me the easy one first. So, um, you know, first I would, um, I would give the person the benefit of the doubt and assume that they are, you know, they are well aware that, you know, smoking is not a very healthy thing to do. And, um, if you feel frustrated with the fact that they, you know, persist with smoking despite the risks, you know, imagine how frustrated they feel with the fact that they persist with smoking despite the risks. Um, so I would uh, I would approach that conversation as compassionately, as non-judgmentally, as as curiously as I could. Um, I would I would really just want to make sure that the person um, understands that. Um, I'm not judging them. I'm not. Um, uh, I'm not oversimplifying um, things, and I want to know if there's anything that I can learn about it that maybe I could help them with if they were, um, if this this was something that they were interested in changing. Um, and then, you know, step step back and and. Um, hand it over to them and, uh, accept that, uh, you know, this, this isn't something that, um, you can necessarily, um, control. You can just kind of, um, let the person know that you're, you're there, you're, you're, um, you're a resource that they can tap into if that's something that they would like to do. And you're, you're ready to kind of support them, be non-judgmental, compassionate, um, and help them out if they want your help. Um, otherwise, you know, you will leave them the hell alone and, and not be a, a judgmental prick and, um, show them pictures of, of, uh, lungs riddled with cancer and, um, you know, the, these, these kind of things that just push people away and, and they're totally counterproductive, but you know, you can pat yourself on the back and walk away feeling good. Like, you yeah, know, I, I, I really told them, um, what I they tried. need to do. Yeah. yeah, I tried. It's, it's not my fault. Right. Yeah. I, I tend to find that when somebody doesn't explicitly bring up the topic of like wanting to change their behavior and then tapping me as a resource that it, it's a very difficult process to initiate and so the strategy that I have kind of tried to, to use is, uh, uh, and thinking about why I'm trying to find, figure out why somebody is doing the behavior without directly asking them why. So like in this particular situation, uh, one strategy that I've used uh, is asking somebody how long they've been smoking for to just bring, initiate the thing. And then, you know, like, when did you start? Do you remember the first time, uh, you know? How long has it been? Yeah. Um, have you ever tried to quit? You know what makes you keep going? Because if you're 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 starting broad, it's kind of like 
lowers the defense barrier down a little bit. And then you can kind of try to extrapolate like, well, why are we still doing this? What other behaviors contribute? You know, you're asking people, when do they smoke? Is it always after a meal? Is it always, you know, first thing in the morning or whatever? You're just trying to find like behaviors that you could, again, like sort of get people to express a specific belief about like why they're doing what they're doing. And then maybe change that or try to change that a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's really hard when people don't bring it up, uh, invariably. Yeah. It'd be easier if somebody, you know, someone just approached you and said, yeah, I'm thinking about stopping smoking. Uh, you want to, do you want to talk about it? (laughs) That's yeah. (laughs) If they come to your office, that may be the case. That is the case. In fact, you know, but, uh, I can, I can speak to this as a, as a former smoker. Um, who I had many uh, unsuccessful attempts to to quit, and um, my my own sort of narratives around why I continued to smoke were very um, were very self uh, blaming and and judgmental, and um, I used a lot of these kind of um, you know sort of circular reasons like oh it's because I, I have an addictive personality. Um, you know, well, how do you know you have an addictive personality? Oh, because, you know, I, I, I can't stop smoking. Um, so right. it's, uh, well, that's, that's, that's not a very useful explanation then, is it? If, if the explanation is, is, is the actual, is that just a description of the behavior? Um, what, we, what we need to um, help people move towards is a much more... Um, kind of uh, scientific explanation for why they do the behavior, which is essentially about um, being able to um, describe the, uh, what we call reinforcement contingency. So, you know, how do you feel? Um, in what sort of context do, do you smoke? Um, what feelings um what thoughts, feelings, sensations, and urges precede this behavior. And then when you do the behavior of smoking, what are the consequences of that? And so what I discovered for myself is that um, uh, a big part of my smoking um, habit was social. Um, so it was something that I had uh, I'd picked up as, a, as an early teen because that's what the cool kids were doing and, and that's how you, you got to, um, you know, socialize and uh, be part of something. Um, and it, you know, it kind of, it continued like that. And so the, what, what, what finally helped me quit um, was not nicotine patches or gum or any of these kind of things that were focused on the, the physical dependency, but um, I actually I quit smoking with my my now wife then girlfriend, um, and we did it together. And it was that social support that mm-hmm. made uh, the difference for me. Um, but I'd never really kind of you know identified that as as one of the reasons for why I was smoking in the first place. Yeah, well, all your mates, as you call them, were smoking with you know with you, and now you could be not smoking with your then girlfriend. Yeah, it's um, you know, the reason why I really wanted to get this, get you on the podcast. Well, for many reasons. One, you're a great guy. Uh, also, the free advertisement at the beginning was that's right. Also excellent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but you know that during the holiday season, I know a lot of people um, are going to be spending time with their families, or at least connecting with their families, even if it's remotely. Um, and I think most of the people who listen to our podcast are the subject matter experts around health and fitness, or you know, diet and exercise, and uh, in very simple terms in their in their families and in their social groups and having people uh who are viewed as the subject matter experts in these things in their social groups more uh aware of successful behavioral change strategies makes for more effective behavioral change and so i think taking this podcast some of the things we talked about this particular strategies about talking, you know, asking the person, uh, questions to, to elicit their sort of, uh, belief system and, and narrative that they have about particular behaviors and why they do them. Um, all of it's drilling down into like getting somebody to, to tell you like why, why they're doing stuff. And so that requires that you are listening more than you're talking. But I find that relationship to be exactly the opposite. People want to just tell people, tell others all the stuff that they know. And in reality, yeah. that that should be reserved for you know relatively short, direct, sort of 
you know, uh, violations of when somebody says something like, oh, I heard that exercise is bad for my back. And you're like, oh, well, what do you mean by that? And you're like, you know, I'm just like we mentioned earlier. Well, if I lift in an incorrect way, I'm going to, you know, herniate a disc across the room. And, it, you know, that's going to be bad, bad for my back. And then, yeah, sure. At that point, you can some either direct evidence uh, can be useful, again, in a compassionate way. Um, and then also some sort of um, agreement upon, well, could you try this? You know, would you feel comfortable doing that? A low risk, low stakes sort of intervention. Yeah. Uh, but. But in that conversation, you, as the expert, quote unquote, is doing way less talking than you <laughs> you probably are right now. It, yeah, just because, exactly. yeah, if you're doing most of the talking, uh, well, you, 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 something's wrong in that situation. Yeah, and I mean, there might be times where where someone will just ask you, you know, like. Um, they will, they will sort of uh, respect your expertise and they'll say, you know, well, I know you're an expert in this area. So tell me, is it true that, you know, sitting for long periods of time is, is worse than smoking? Or, you know, if you have a bad posture, um, you'll, uh, you'll get uh, terrible arthritis or, you know, whatever. And um, they're, they're asking for you to, to give them a, the TED talk. But mm -hmm. um, uh, if, it's, if it's unsolicited, um, people's defenses come up and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's for, again, you know, from a pragmatic perspective, it just doesn't work. So, you know, you can, you can give yourself the pat on the back and, you know, well, I've given them the information and it's not my problem now, but, uh, you know, if you genuinely want to, um, uh, help people, um, uh, make lasting behavior change, then, um, uh, we want to do what works, not, uh, not what, um, not what is, is kind of, um, allows us to, to be right. Sure. Right. Yeah. I, again, if this is about actually helping others make, you know, health promoting changes in their life, it, it doesn't really matter what you feel like during <laughs> or after the thing, or yeah. rather that the other person, uh, you know, has, has started to make strides. Exactly. Um, yep. So this is cool. Hopefully people can use some of these techniques, some of these strategies when, uh, you know, others actually inquire or just having casual conversation or, you know, when that one nosy aunt, uh, who follows you on Instagram says like, Hey, aren't you going to hurt your back if you keep lifting yeah. so heavy? Hey, great way to ask her some questions then about why she thinks that rather exactly. than say, no, the evidence suggests that actually this is <laughs> yeah. good at forming adaptive changes in my body. That, that is true, but ultimately unhelpful. Um, Okay. Last thing I'm going to ask you, what's up with this AT, ACT companion thing? Is this like an app I can download it on my phone and it's going to like change my behavior or what? Yeah. So, um, so act companion it's called, um, it's a, uh, an app that I've, uh, co-created with, um, Dr. Russ Harris, who is a, um, an author of some act self-help books. Um, the happiness trap is his, uh, number one bestseller. Um, I highly, highly recommend the book for anyone, uh, anyone listening. Um, and, uh, so the, the app was really designed, um, I kind of designed it for myself, uh, to, to use with my clients. Cause I just got sick of, you know, like printing out handouts and, you know, this was back in the day when uh, we had, uh, CDs as well. So I was, I was wow. burning CDs and printing handouts and things. Um, and I was like, God, you know, I just wish someone would, would put all this stuff on an app so I could just, um, you know, I could just get clients to download an app and, and, and give them exercises to do and stuff. So, um, so I created the app and, uh, and then got Russ, Russ Harris on board cause he's got some amazing, uh, content. Um, the apps are actually sort of, uh, starting to show its age now. So we're working, uh, at the moment on a, a major update to the app. Um, so it is, it is still available on, um, on iPhone and, uh, will shortly, um, in the new year be available on Android as well in a completely revised and revamped, um, version. But, um, definitely for, um, for people who are interested in, um, acceptance and commitment therapy and wanting to, um, learn some of the, the skills, um, that, uh, that help with behavior change. Um, yeah, I'd high, highly recommend it. Uh, there you go. There's your plug. You give me a plug. I give you a plug. That's That's it. How yeah. <laughs> nice. And also, um, please do, uh, check me out on, um, the socials, uh, barbell psychology, um, is the clinic. 
Um, and uh, yeah, hoping to um, post uh, some content that might help to change people's perspective on uh, how they deal with uh, with pain and behavior change. That's great. You you even preempted my tell me where people can find you. That's that's it. There you Mine's go. Yeah. On, on social media, we'll put all of his links in our description below. Awesome. Uh, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that's a wrap on episode 125, Behavioral Change with Dr. Anthony Barrick. Big thanks to him for joining me um, on this week's podcast for all of his links and information. Check out the description below. And as always, thank you so much for joining us on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you could take a second, leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you're getting this podcast from. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast helps you know give us the motivation to keep making these podcasts particularly ad free sponsor free you know you imagine if like the pre-roll before the podcast was like five minutes long just reading sponsors no we're not doing that we're getting offers you know not not offers that we want but we're getting offers nonetheless but we're going to keep bringing you these podcasts for free uh, ad free and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to listen so share um, and give us some feedback And we really appreciate you. See you next Monday and every Monday right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.